RadioInfluence.com. Why, Crusher, it's good to see you. You're listening to Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 10 12 60 with your questions, comments, or smart ass remarks. everybody jeff Kershaw here hey we're your weekly source for performance information listen if you have any questions comments or smart remarks reach out to us crushperformance.com is the email info at crushperformance is where you can send us an email with those said questions comments or smart remarks we love them all also if you have a topic you'd like us to investigate or something you'd like us to look into Um, Let us know. We've dedicated segments, even entire episodes to your ideas. So as much as we pride ourselves in getting you guys thinking about maybe things you haven't thought about before, um, it's a two-way street. You guys have really, really got us thinking about some things that we either haven't thought about for a while or we just haven't really considered before. So it's a great partnership. So please do get to us with any of your thoughts and we answer every single message that we get. If you don't want it on air, that's quite all right. We check with everybody first and we simply will ask if it's okay. If we post that question or post that comment, maybe with your first name, credit where credit is due. If you want to stay anonymous, that's very cool. But here's the deal. If you have that question or if you need some help with something, imagine how many other people, probably have that same question or need that very same help. Here's what we could tell you. We'll do our best to answer it. If we don't have the answer, I can pretty much guarantee we know somebody in our network that will know the answer. And the great thing about this beautiful world of sport and sport performance is everybody's pretty willing to share, especially when the goal and objectives are to educate and help athletes, coaches, parents, get a better understanding on what it takes to truly achieve, you know, human maximum performance or achieve their potential. Again, we don't know what that potential might be. So don't ever let anybody tell you you can't and be very, very cautious of those who tell you you're uh, on your way to the promised land because both of those roads can be a very, very slippery slope. We don't really know until you've gone through the right process. And that's what the show's all about today. Everybody, Got a little bit of a cold going on. No, it is not COVID, but I am under the COVID symptoms. So uh, it's not a runny nose, which I believe is a COVID symptoms. It's a stuffy nose, which might just be a fall thing. I'm not sure. We've been outside a lot here. Harvest is going on. I don't have any allergies. So I just think it's a common cold, but uh, we're proceeding with caution like we all should. Masking up and keeping a low profile till we uh, get a better understanding what's going on here. But regardless, a little stuffy today. As we head into episode number two of our incredibly fascinating series called The Crush Brain Game. And the first episode of this series, we talk with Dr. Martin Morazic, setting the tone for what exactly the brain game is all about. We're digging down deep, trying to get a better idea of what brain performance is all about and how exactly do you define the brain in terms of human performance anyway. It's a big topic. The brain is one of the most complex organisms in our universe. And I think 
we can honestly say there's more we don't know about it than we do know about it. However, the advances that we've made here in the last little while have been incredibly encouraging. And it's really turned our understanding of human performance um, onto the next page. And, and that's what the series is all about. We're looking at whether the brain should now be established as a crush. And again, this is just in our matrix. I'm talking from our standpoint. When we take an athlete or an organization under the fold, when we start consulting or start looking at ways to help organizations, teams, and athletes perform at the very highest levels, you know, we have a certain criteria, a certain list of things, a checklist, so to speak, of things that need to be addressed if you're truly going to look to tap into human performance. And right off the bat, when we sit down with an athlete, team, or organization, again, there's four things that have to be checked off. Are you considering sleep and the sleep of your athletes, your employees, your students, whatever it might be, wherever there's human performance going on, sleep is the number one priority in human performance. Without that, all else fails. Very little. And actually, truthfully, nothing can make up for a lack of sleep. So let's make sure we're addressing sleep on a day-to-day basis, week-by-week basis, month-by-month basis. However you're blocking your sleep up, let's take care of it. Know how much sleep you need. Know how to adjust when you don't get a good sleep. And also learn the strategies for coping with and dealing with um, things that might be taking you away from, from good sleep habits. So our number one priority, of course, in human performance is sleep. Right in there, rest and recovery. Every program we build on should be built around rest and recovery. All the technical tactical work, all the volume and intensity of strength and conditioning and athlete development work should be based on the amount of total and quality rest and recovery our athletes get. And this is where the biggest mistakes in sport are being made right now. Right now, we are working more and not resting enough. See, here's the thing. The body can actually withstand and perform incredible amounts of work. The human body is an incredible organism unto itself. Inside of that, of course, today's topic, the brain. But the body itself can perform massive amounts of work. What we don't do is we don't typically give it enough rest. Right? We're overworking, underresting, and really, honestly, if we look at the sporting landscape out there, that is one of the major contributors to this incredible rise in injuries we're seeing at every single level of sport, along with specialization, high pressure, year-round sport, a lot of things going on, but that all comes under the onus and umbrella of rest and recovery. Sleep, rest, and recovery, number one. Nutrition and hydration, number two. Posture, range of motion, Around the joints, are your athletes functional? Number three. Number four, movement. Are your athletes good movers when it comes to sport? The top three can be for anything. Sleep, rest, recovery, nutrition, hydration, posture, range of motion. It might be a music school. It might be an academic school. It might be a law firm. It might be a construction agency. I had a great talk a year ago with a paving company, believe it or not. All of their employees just talking about, hey, how do we keep you safe? How do we do re- reduce the risk of injury on the job site? Hey, that's an incredibly important conversation. And the principles that we apply with our athletes, they can be applied to every single worker in that organization. A paving company. We've talked to bankers. How do you encourage bankers, uh, people who work in the bank, to be at their best every single day? Well, hey, man, that's customer service. If you don't have good customer service, you're not going to last long, though the banks do rule. But you still want your customers to be happy, right? And you want your workers to be safe and healthy, you know, and for students, how do you keep students on task and learning at a maximum rate in the high school if it's academics? 
right? Think about our military and our police, our first responders. Now, this is a, this is a very different conversation than sport. I mean, it's all about human performance, but boy, oh boy, oh boy. When we talk about our military, our police and first responders, oh man, some of this stuff is life and death. You got to be on your toes. You got to be in a really, really high state of readiness um, because there's bigger things at stake than just winning or losing in a sporting match, right? And so a lot of the research is dedicated to keeping our first responders, police, and especially our military, you know, safe on the job. And unfortunately, you know, we're not having these conversations enough revolving around that. And then how about take something like our long haul truck drivers? How many of you have been sleepy behind the wheel at some point? I sure have, man. And I've actually pulled over and tried to sleep. And there's times when I feel like I could fall asleep in a heartbeat behind the wheel, boom, pull over, uh, close my eyes for a bit. Even if I don't fall asleep, just relaxing can get me back into it. Um, but for our long haul truck drivers, boy, man, sleep, sleep, rest and recovery, nutrition, hydration, really important stuff, staying on top. But when it comes to sport, then we start deviating. Sleep, rest, recovery, nutrition, hydration, posture, range of motion, important just for health and function, no matter what you do. But then when we talk about sport, movement is our next big priority. If we're talking musicians, it might be movement still. I'm not sure. You know, I don't know a lot about, you know, working with the world-class philharmonic orchestras, but I'm sure, you know, that uh, there are things they need to do to really, really succeed and, and be successful to be the best in the world. Think about our dancers or think about, you know, our, our, our uh, um, assembly line workers, construction workers. You know, this is where we can start deviating after those three. For sport, for us in the crush performance world, movement's the next priority. If we don't have great movement skills, if we don't understand our interaction with the ground or the surface we're playing on, snow, ice, hardwood, grass, turf, clay, whatever it might be, if we don't have a good relationship there, we're going to have a really hard time succeeding in sport. That's why that rounds up our top four. But now the conversation goes a little bit deeper. Over the last 10 years, we've really been, you know, working hard at the mental side of sport performance. And the mental side of sport performance is only one part of brain performance. We've dug down deep for probably over 10 years, probably more like 20 years in sport vision and understanding how that works. The eyes are just an extension of the brain. They're the only external part of the brain, really, if you think about it. But that sensory input that goes in through the eyes, especially for sport performance, it's critical. Our understanding, our ability to process. Then how about our moods and personality? All part of the brain. How about the chemistry and hormone response? All part of the brain, right? How about our attitudes? Our outlooks, our mindset, which has been a conversation on this show for more than 12 years. How about awareness and mindfulness, sports psychology, the mental game? They're all just components of the brain. So in this series, The Brain Game, we're working to define the brain in terms of human performance. And then we're also connecting the dots. Where are we at and where are we going when it comes to the brain? And is it something that should be addressed as a foundation of performance? So when we go back and look at our top priorities for human performance, sleep, rest, recovery, nutrition, hydration, posture, range of motion, and movement, those are foundational priorities. Without those in place, you're working uphill. You're running into the wind. You're swimming upstream. However you want to say it, you're up against it. But with those things in place, at least you have a chance to really cruise into and tackle 
your pursuit of, of your potential, right? The technical, you can go out and work with your coaches as much as you want. If you're not sleeping, resting, if you're not eating and hydrating properly, if you're not functioning properly in terms of range of motion and posture, I don't care how much you work with your coach. You're never going to reach your potential. It's not possible. You're probably going to wind up injured is what's going to happen. I don't care how much you compete unless those four are taken care of. I don't care how strong you are. What happens when you take an athlete that has poor posture and can't move well and you put them in the weight room and make them really strong? What do you get at the end of the day? Well, you get an athlete that might be all right, but you get an athlete with, who is strong with bad posture and poor movement. Think about this for a second. What happens if you take a year or two years and continually move on to establish and maintain good posture and you teach an athlete how to really move and interact with their environments and then you get them strong? Ooh, now you got a shot at potential. You got to understand potential is a long game as well. Sport performance, long-term athlete development is a long game. But what we do with our six, seven, eight-year-olds really sets them up for what we can do for 9, 10, 11, 12, which is a critical, a critical age group in development. It's where skill acquisition happens. Might be the most important group of athletes in our entire systems, regardless. It's got to be fun, all right? But that's where skill acquisition happens, 9, 10, 11, 12. From there, that sets us up for 13, 14, 15, 16, when we're kind of finishing off that growth spurt where the nervous system and the body start coming together, where coordination in the future of the athlete is really established. And once that's done, now we could start thinking about really focusing on the real technical, tactical, skill acquisition, talent side of development, because the stage is already set if we have our foundations in place. And then we can address strength to really enhance. Remember, the only reason we put an athlete into the weight room is to help them become a better mover in their sport, help them accomplish their goals in their sport. It's an important concept. We see way too often athletes and programs making the mistake of putting athletes into the weight room way too early with no idea of the true implications, long-term implications. You go in the weight room and change your body the wrong way at the wrong time in development, you actually lower the ceiling of potential. And that's why sometimes we see these great young athletes just fall off the map later on. Everybody's shooting for these short-term gains, and you could see a great 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old at the cost of destroying what they're going to look like and what they're going to be able to do when they're 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. So wherever you're at, here's how we operate anyway. I'm not saying we're the end-all, be-all, but this is just how some of the things we learn. This is how we like to go about it. We, when we get an athlete into our system, we always think about, okay, hey, look, this athlete's 14 or 15, right? What have they done in the past? Where are they at right now? And what do we need them to look at, look like? And what do we need them to be able to do when they're 23? We don't really give a rat's behind what they can do as a 14 or 15-year-old. You know, we care about what they can do, but what we really care about is what they're going to do when they start hitting their stride in their late teens and early 20s. Keep that in mind if you're a parent, if you're a coach, or if you're an administrator of an organization. And then for our pro athletes, hey, listen, we've got some incredible athletes up there who haven't seen any of this stuff. And when we introduce some of this to them, boom, we open up another level of performance. Now they've got such a great a great base to work from. They've got a great reference point. They've got experience. 
at the highest levels of sport, whether they're Olympic sports, collegiate or Olympic athletes, collegiate athletes, or even our pro pro athletes, they typically learn quickly. And if it's presented properly, they can assimilate what they learn into their performance. If you can help them connect those dots, oh man, is that fun? All right. But here's what I truly believe. Again, this is going back to that whole concept of long-term development. Um, I think this next generation of athletes is going to raise the level of high performance. We've seen some great performances over the over the ages, but what we're heading into next is going to be truly exceptional. And one of the areas that's really going to push us through is the brain game. Our understanding of the brain, how it interacts with the body, and not only that, the technology that's now available that allows us to map, see what's happening in the brain, and train it real time. Tangible, instant feedback for the athletes to respond to. Whether we're talking about stress and anxiety, whether we're talking about heart rate or skin conductance, whether we're talking about bio or neurofeedback. Oh my goodness, it is an exciting time. So welcome everybody to the second episode of the Crush Brain Game. As we set out to decide and establish whether the brain should be one of those foundation pillars of development, or is it something that once our key four priorities are set up, is the brain something we can address after the fact, or is the brain something that needs to be addressed before we even go out to attack strength, speed, and power, or before we attack talent and skill acquisition, the technical tactical side of the game, does our brain status? And are there things we can do to enhance coachability across the board? Oh, that's the quest of this series. We don't know whether it's going to be two episodes. Well, it's going to be more than two. I could tell you that right now because this is episode number two and we've got more to talk about. But we're going around the world talking to some of the leading experts to get a better understanding of where we're at in terms of our understanding of the brain and human performance. And also we're going to look at the technologies that are allowing us to now train the brain like never before in human history. Coming up after the break, we continue the conversation with Dr. Eric Pepper, professor of holistic health at San Francisco State University. Dr. Pepper is an international authority on biofeedback, and he's the president of the Biofeedback Federation of Europe. We're going to talk about the brain-body connection and how it's a two-way street. We're going to talk about posture because that's one of his areas of study and it's huge for us you know it's our third priority so i can't wait to talk about that and we're going to look at how technology is set to launch us into the next level of human performance especially when it comes to brain training so get set everybody we got a fantastic conversation coming up right after this break as we forge on in the second episode of the crush brain game right after this Listening to Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. Get the Crush blogs, podcasts, and performance links at crushperformance.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Crush Performance, everybody. Jeff Kershell here. Hey, we're your weekly source for performance information. Reach out to us. With your questions, comments, or smart remarks, crushperformance.com is the website. Info at crushperformance is our email. Follow me on Twitter at Jeff Crush and on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Simply check out Crush Performance and we'll hook you up there uh, with all the information that we're posting. All right. Well, today we're into uh, the episode two of a very special series called The Crush Brain Game. 
as we work to establish and understand whether the brain should be one of our top priorities for setting us up for for success. Now, listen, uh, there were some uh, emails that came in on the mailbag that I wanted to get to today. Um, I'm letting everybody know that we're going to get to those next week. I want to get those, uh, get to those right off the top next week. There's so many great things going on in sport that we could talk about the MLB playoffs, the NBA getting into their finals, the NHL. Hey, the, uh, Tampa Bay lightning. Congratulations to everybody there. Steven Stamkos, one of my favorite athletes, one of my favorite professional athletes, not necessarily because he's an incredible top performer in the NHL. He is a serious well-respected NHL player, but just his leadership, just his presence and how that influences that team. Uh, that's something we're going to look at later this year because um, he's a pretty special uh, person when it comes to that organization. And I think just having him there in the bubble in Edmonton for that Stanley cup final uh, was really, really important. And then of course we have soccer and the NFL is underway. I'm really enjoying this NFL season so far. Just, I was watching to see how different it would be without the fans. But the football has been fantastic. And the Monday last Monday night's game was was great. But there are teams we're watching in the NFL. Raiders are my team in their new stadium. Uh, kind of a kind of a sad introduction to the new stadium in Vegas. Also to the Texas Rangers new stadium this year. Hopefully fans will be able to enjoy that next year. But we're watching the Patriots, Bucks, the Rams. Green Bay Packers, so many storylines in the NFL we're watching as well. All, all about human performance. And that's what the show's all about. So uh, we want to get to that. We'll talk more about that next week. But there were some important emails that came into the mailbag uh, from Matt, uh, Donnie, Lucy, or three that we're going to get to. We're going to answer those ones in the first segment of next week's show. I promise you that's going to happen. Um, but today we got to get to our interview with Dr. Eric Pepper. He is a professor of holistic health at San Francisco State University. He's also an international authority on biofeedback and the president of the Biofeedback Federation of Europe. Dr. Pepper, welcome to the Crush Brain Game. So glad you can join us today. It's such a pleasure to join because people forget that mind, body are really the same. And so every thought, every emotion without awareness affects our body. And, which is the more newer part in psychology, that your body affects your brain and emotions and thoughts. It's a, it's a very interesting relationship between the body and the brain. It is seriously a two-way street, isn't it, Dr. Pepper? Absolutely. And, you know, maybe the easiest way to, to explain that is by some exercises for the audience, if that's okay. Absolutely. And that is like a posture. And our language in English is filled with this, you know. I'm looking up. He's standing tall. He slouches. It's a downer. We think of those words, but they apply psychological states associated with it. Now we walk, we are in a world where many of us are looking downward at our cell phone. We bring we bring the cell phone very close to our face. We don't know we're doing this. We slouch. Our cervical spine starts bending more forward, which affects our breathing. But it's much worse than that. What it does also is decreases our peripheral awareness. So if I were a baseball player, for example, if I do this a lot, I would have less peripheral awareness and knowledge where that's going in the far side of the field. In this downward position, I also change my mood. Remember, if you're collapsed, it's a defeated position. It's a position of hopelessness, powerlessness. At times when I look at the Olympics, some athletes, when they come in second or third, 
you see their whole body posture collapsing. Some are totally proud and happy that they made it at all. That, but for the ones who collapse, that position is one of defeat. But we forget when we are defeated, we have that negative experience. But if I just put my body into that position, it is a conditioned cue which evokes in my brain that same hopeless experience. So uh, if you want to experience this, I'll do this very shortly. Do it by yourself sometime later for a longer time. Uh, just sit and now just sit collapse. So you collapse a bit, slouch. You look down. When you look down or you're in the slouch position with the cervical spine curve, just like you're looking at your cell phone, in this position, you only evoke hopeless, helpless, powerless, defeated memories. Just evoke one after the other. And you would do this for 30 seconds. Then you don't change your position. You stay in the slouch position and now only evoke optimistic, empowering, positive memories. Just do this again for 30 seconds. Now you shift your position. Now you sit way up. You look up. So you're tall and you look up. Now in this up position, evoke only helpless, hopeless, powerless, defeated memories for 30 seconds. And then after 30 seconds, keep that up position and evoke only optimistic, empowering, positive memories. You know what is so interesting when we do this study? That when people, and we do it very well in the balance design and published, when people slouch, it's much easier to evoke hopeless, helpless, defeated memories. When you are in the opposition, it's easier to evoke empowering memories. And what's even more interesting is when you're in the slouch body position, when you're trying to think of optimistic memories, empowering memories, in sports, ah, I can perform this task. But you see, the brain just has to work much harder. It's most interesting. And if I look at it one more different way, so this says really, my body position impacts my thought pattern. Now imagine in the middle of a game, you are saying that, you know, doubtful, I can't perform, I'm, I'm worried. At that moment, change your body position. Look up, at least you're configuring the body to start invoking more optimistic, empowering, and successful memories. Yeah, that's a great exercise. And I can see this really, really being meaningful. Uh, Dr. Pepper, you know, when, when we look back in the history of our athletes, one of the first things we do in our, one of our top priorities is posture. Our top priorities, the way they sit right now, our rest, recovery, sleep, number one, first and foremost, nutrition, hydration, and then posture. Typically when we talk posture, when people talk posture, especially in the sporting world, we're talking about balance, symmetry, and range of motion and function. Very, very rarely do we get into the discussion. And, and I love what you said here, thought patterns and condition cues. These are powerful statements. And yet, Dr. Pepper, when we look back at the history of our athletes, if I go back as little as 15 years, we're almost seeing a transformation in terms of the postures, especially of our young athletes, uh, to this new age where, where we are slouched forward. And we're seeing this change right now um, as athletes come into our, our organization and, and we, we sort of break them down. Uh, and I'm calling it, I call it a tap posture. I just sort of coined it a tap posture, a technology adapted posture. And frankly, it's not good for function. And certainly based on what you're saying, it's not good for our outlook and our mental health either. Yeah, so let me add two more pieces to it. For, I think for anyone who's interested in these concepts, like partly of our posture going forward is our, 
our smartphones, our cell phones, which I call them cell phone because I can imagine being in this prison cell and I am captured and captivated <laughs> by the cell phone. I, love I cannot it. escape from it. <laughs> I and love second, it. And I agree. And then second, we are captured by the screens all the time. We become, we have sitting disease. And those concepts and what to do about it, especially young people and old, we, we just finished in our new book called Tech Stress, how technology is hijacking our lives and strategies for coping and pragmatic ergonomics. But I, I think that would be, I would recommend anybody in any sports to look at that book together. But let me go one more exercise for sports, because in my experience, many of our young athletes really only believe when I physically can experience it. And so there's another nice one one can do. And let me see if I can describe it. That's to see how posture affects your strength. So what you do is you, you stand normally up. So you stand up. It takes two people to do this. You're standing up. Now you bring your right arm sideways. So it's horizontal to your shoulder. And it reaches out to the wall. You know, just plainly bring it up. Now you have a partner. Press on your wrist downward and see how much effort it takes. So the athlete will, or the person will resist the downward pressure. You get a sense how much pressure it takes. Now have the person exaggerate the slouch. So now they get more cervical curvature. So now they're more curved. Now repeat the same pressing on the, on the wrist and see what happens. And finally, on the third time, have the person now sit up or stand up straight, really tall. And tallness means not that the eyes go up, but the back of the neck goes up as if it's a straight line going through the back of the head, almost the crown of the head in the back that goes, reaches to the ceiling. Let your head reach to the ceiling. Now bring your arm up and now press down on your wrist again. It's the simplest demonstration. And when you do it, what you see almost universally for everyone we have ever done, that when they slouch, they are much weaker in the arm, they cannot resist the downward pressure as much. And it makes no difference if you're a weightlifter, a baseball player, a swimmer, or someone who only works at, who works at the computer. Fascinating. It's such a great. Yeah, that that is a great exercise. We'll 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 do that one for sure. And I'm going to encourage everybody to do it. We're talking with Dr. Eric Pepper, professor of holistic uh, holistic health at San Francisco State University, also author. And you mentioned your new book that came out just here in August called Tech Stress: How Technology Is Hijacking Our Lives. Strategies for Coping and Pragmatic Ergonomics um, with Richard Harvey and Nancy Foz. I think I pronounced Nancy's last name correctly, uh, but this is a very, very important yeah. piece of work. And there's, you know, I mean, we really think the book also includes this, how important our thoughts are. Ask yourself the simple question. When you think of hopeless thoughts, you are slouching a tiny bit. But let me do it even differently for coaches. After a game, what we often do, or after our performance, we ask the question, what happened? You know, especially if you didn't do well. And when you do ask that question, you, are, you have to look at what you did in your mind's eye. You rehearse, in a sense, I would say your failure. You want to do that once to identify what the problem is. And then you want to say, thank you. I did the best I could ever have done at that moment for the reasons I may not totally understand. But at that moment, I only did what I did. And now, how could I do it in a better way? How can I see myself doing it differently? 
so I can perform even better. So you want to use that inner cue, which, which starts blaming, oh, I missed this shot, I did this, blah, 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 which gets you in a downward spiral, which then you rehearse unknowingly each time you bring up that negative failure event, you're rehearsing those motor patterns, the behavioral patterns to fail again the same way more. Instead, you say, thank you, it happened at that moment. It's the only thing I could have done given my genetics, my emotional state, my diet, whatever may be going on. And now I use that as the trigger to see myself doing it in a new way. And when we do this as athletes, I'm so impressed when they really do this. They really interrupt that thought pattern. It's an accepting of whatever happened and using that information to create a new image, what you want to be. So this is only a very small change. We see significant changes in their performance and improvement. And, and Dr. Pepper, this is a skill that can be taught, practiced, and learned just like any skill we would practice and develop inside of sports. Such an important aspect in terms of human performance. Yes, and that's, you know, I always smile at this because we think of mental images and thoughts, the language we use in our brain. Oh, you know, I can change it like a snap of my finger. No, it's no different than the practice it takes to become a good tennis player. It takes practice and practice, not mindless practice. It takes practice with intention and being present. And in the fourth, let me just give an example. I like to do this with my students at the university a lot because otherwise they just think I'm a talking head. <laughs> uh, you, know, just, you know, just think of something where you would say, uh, I can't do this. You know, I can't. Right. Think of something in your world. I can't do Excel. Or I can't, you know, how we, we often automatically have something in our world where we say, I cannot do it. Just say that to yourself. I cannot do this. Like a mantra. You know, it's impossible. Right. And you keep saying that. And you do this for a little while. And now you stop and now you say, wait a minute. Let me check. I have a choice. I can say, I choose not to do it. That's one. Or you can say, I haven't taken the time to learn. I haven't had enough coaching yet. I need to find a better coach. Whatever phrase works for you, put that new phrase in instead. So instead of saying, I can't do this, you say to yourself, I haven't taken the time to learn to do this. I haven't had the right, you know, I'm developing, I'm looking for a new coach to do this, whatever vocabulary. So you change it into a possibility. And now say that phrase inside yourself. And when you do that for a while, and now compare what happens to you I think what you may experience is that when you say, huh, I haven't taken the time to learn, I haven't taken the time to practice, whatever it is, you feel slightly lighter, slightly more optimistic. And that is a little energy charge that builds up over the time. And when people start doing this, they often procrastinate less and their performance significantly improves. Such a little thing. Yeah, such a little thing that makes such a big difference. Yeah, let me give it as an example, which people can play with at home, with little kids. I love analogies. So when you take a, uh, you take a four, three, three-year-old child who can now walk pretty well, now imagine it's visiting your parents, it's a, you know, and now you make the, give the child a cup filled with hot chocolate. And now the child has to carry this hot chocolate cup to their parents across a nice, fancy, light-colored rug. <laughs> and halfway... Halfway as the child is carrying it, you now say, 
don't spill it. Don't spill it. I'll promise you at that moment when you say don't spill it, the brain gives the, the signal first to spill it and then to correct it so the child spills it. If you say instead, you're walking very well, look, you know, your pacing is great, whatever you would say, look how steady the person will unlikely spill it. When we say we can't do this or don't do this, which we often do, we often unknowingly tell athletes or people, don't do the following. We're really re evoking the negative image first. What you want, the brain needs to know where you want to go, not where you cannot go. Right. Right. We're talking with Dr. Eric Pepper, uh, professor of holistic health at San Francisco State University. You can check out his great work, his website, biofeedbackhealth.org, where you can get uh, the Pepper perspective, his great blog, tons of great, great information there. Dr. Pepper, that is a great drill. And I think we can all relate to that. And um, what we're talking about here has implications well, well beyond sport. This has massive implications in parenting, coaching, also in leadership. And let's face it, internally self-leadership as well. This is a really powerful things. How we present and how we talk to ourselves uh, and other people can really influence how they operate. And that's something that I think a lot of people just neglect to even think about from time to time. Absolutely. And we forget that, I, that there's an interaction between our body and our emotional patterns, state. If you feel insure, unsure of yourself, if you're anxious, we tend to breathe more in our chest. Normally, we've always said, okay, just change your thoughts. That's sort of more or less the classical behavior therapy approaches, cognitive, cognitive behavior therapy approaches. The newer world says you need to also change your body, and it's often even quicker to change your body first. So if you feel anxious, if you feel unsure of yourself, you fake it till you make it. But I mean by that is you put your body, you configure your body in the position of feeling powerful and then shift your breathing to diaphragmatic breathing. That means really let the breath slow down. So when you inhale, the diaphragm really goes down. It means the abdominal area expands as if your lungs are in your stomach like a big bowl. Let this bowl get bigger. And as you exhale, let the bowl, your stomach get a bit smaller and then do it very slowly. So near the end of the exhalation, the stomach is slightly in. And now when you inhale, this, the abdomen widens. And you can know if you're doing it correctly in the following exercise. This is a great test. I love this one. Have, just for a moment, stand up. Really just stand up. Okay. And now take a very big breath. A big, fairly quick, big breath. Really take it in. And now let the air go out. Repeat it one more time. Take a big breath in. Let the air go out. And what did you experience when you inhaled? Did you get taller or smaller? Yeah, I know. Certainly taller. Then, from our perspective, you breathe incorrectly. <laughs> because what you did is you lifted way up in your chest you raised your shoulders, you wasted all this energy lifting your shoulders, you stiffened your shoulders without knowing, your neck even. Right. You almost tightened your abdomen, you almost pulled your abdomen in, in the extreme case some people do. And your diaphragm tries to go down, it can't quite go down, so you're doing a lot of work and being less efficient. On the other hand, if you stand up, you take a breath, and now when you inhale, let your stomach get bigger, almost put your hand on your belly button or so, feel it going out, you can still be tall. The back of your head is still reaching toward the sky. 
as if in the back of the head it's pointing up and up. And then when you exhale, if you want to make a sound in the first couple of times to get a feel for it, make a sound like... Yeah, no, it's a big difference. It's a big difference. Absolutely. You feel your stomach coming in. Yes. Now let your stomach widen again. And then finally, which is critical, I think, for in our age of COVID-19, you want to learn to breathe slower this way in many situations and inhale only through your nose. Because what happens when you inhale through your nose, the air is filtered, moisturized, warmed, especially in Canada in the wintertime. And it means it doesn't irritate the airways as much. So you can you tend to have less asthma episodes. And finally, if you breathe slowly this way, inhale and exhale through the nose, the nasal cavity produces a gas called nitric oxide, which is a which screws by the body, and that allows it acts a little bit as an antiviral antibacterial, and it allows a the, 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 the better gas exchange in a way that changes how the, the lining of the of the cells in a way, and so it's really protective. So I really recommend everyone to start focusing easily about only breathing through their nose, and that is really they need to display quietly, probably about six breaths a minute, more or less. So you inhale, you let your stomach get bigger. Then when you exhale, the air flows out very easily, almost pause, and then you inhale again. And in this pause, nitric oxide keeps building up in the nose. And then when you inhale again through your nose, it's almost bringing this gas down to help and heal the tissue. Beautiful. This is a classic example of biofeedback, wouldn't you say? For our listeners who don't really understand biofeedback, Dr. Pepper, how would you describe it? And this is a classic example, isn't it? Yes, biofeedback is really where you are monitoring the body, often with electronic instrumentation. However, that's not always available, and it displays what you're doing right away. Some of the practices we did are feedback practices, mm-hmm. like this one. You know, you stood up. You, when you should take a big breath, you observed, ah, I got taller. Now if I can do the same thing without getting taller, but my stomach widens, I use my hand as the biofeedback device. And after a while, one can observe this in yourself and others. It's most useful. I could do one more, maybe on exercise, which is really feedback for fun. It's done. It's great to do with a group of, of, of athletes. What you do is you pair up with each other. And now you ask the athlete to one of the athletes to reach out and, and reach out to the other person's right, let's say, right arm. They hold their wrist, and the, perp- the person whose arm is going to be moved, that arm is totally limp and loose. Now their partner takes that wrist and moves the arm very unpredictably, a little bit forward, backwards, sideways, very slowly, not too fast, and then all of a sudden lets it drop. So if I lift the arm slightly up, not too far up, and let it drop, if the arm and shoulder are relaxed, the arm should just drop like a raggedy end doll. Practice that for a while till the person can really do this. It takes a little while of practice. It's a fun game to do. You're almost shaking the arm really loosely of your partner. Now as the arm is really loose, now ask the person about one of their sports events where they may have had a difficulty. Remember the time that you missed or whatever? At that moment, the shoulders often tighten. Often the arm stiffens up. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to show how thoughts affect body. 
Normally, we can show that with equipment, but this is a way you can do this in a, in a partnership and you can become aware how powerful thoughts are and affect body. Yeah, and that's a great one. And I've experienced that myself. I, I can find myself tensing up when I think of, I'm a, I'm a very avid mountain biker. And when I think of a trail that's got the best of me or a drop that's got the best of me, you know, I'll think of attacking that trail. I will tense up automatically. You know, I do find though, that if I take the right approach and break it down, I have much, much more success, even in my imagery of, of attacking that particular part of a trail, as opposed to, you know, being all tense and, and wired up and, and boy, oh boy, that positive thought in, in, in terms of sport performance. Well, you actually started as a psychologist at one of the highest levels of sport, working with the uh, U.S. Olympic programs. Um, and we know the power of, of our thought process. W would you, you know, we, we throw around a very powerful, important word right now, mindfulness, just being aware of how we're thinking. This is kind of falls into that realm, does it not? Absolutely. It is really the real key is control, being able to have masterfulness over your thought sequences. And sometimes you have to trick yourself into it. You know, it's really important. I mean, I, you just reminded me of skiing. In fact, I ski. And I remember, you know, when if I ski and I come to a very steep part, if I stop at that moment, then all of a sudden I have to, oh, my God, I got to be careful. Double <laughs> right. I, I have much more difficulty. If, on the other hand, I'm already going down the slope and then I could just continue, those thoughts don't come up. And I ski so much better. Yeah. <laughs> I have observed this so often. So now I trick myself. I know there's a steep part. I stop. In fact, even someone's go up the hill, get my rhythm going. Then I just know I have it. Skiing, you're you know, committed. Skiing. Hey, we're, yeah, that's great. We're talking with Dr. Eric Pepper. He is the president of the Biofeedback Federation of Europe. You can check out his great information at biofeedbackhealth.org, uh, where you can get the uh, Pepper Perspective, the great blog that uh, Dr. Pepper writes. You know, I, I just wanted before before we go, this has been a fantastic conversation. Again, our quest here is to better understand the power of the mind. We're having trouble just defining the brain. We're calling the series The Brain Game. And one of our challenges here is we're trying to define the brain in terms of human performance. And today's discussion opens up a whole new window of, of area that we need to consider when we talk about the brain's role in human performance and why the brain should maybe be one of the top priorities, Dr. Pepper. Well, I always laugh because when I first did this 30 years ago or more, you know, it is like the question I ask, if you ask athletes, when you're at the, at the you know, you're doing your 100-yard meter run or in a game, what is most important? They uniformly say, it is not the skill at that point. It is my mental attitude. And if I can have my mental focus correct, that is critical. And what we often forget is that we assume that people develop that skill called, quote, but it's often called neat experience because you have done it. It is trainable. You can train people by imagery rehearsal techniques. You can do role playing. You can start teaching people ways to change how they describe themselves or what they pull up. And I finally want to end with one more piece, if that's helpful, because I'm trying to think of especially young athletes and about nutrition, posture, and breathing. And they're all linked together. We used to think only, oh, it's only one that's important. No, we are individuals. We all are different. We all have our uniqueness. The key is to listen to yourself. But there is one interesting piece, which I think for athletes is critical. Given our Western diet, which can be so deleterious from my perspective. Mm -hmm. 
So what we know is that if you have people hyperventilate, hyperventilation means you overbreathe, you breathe very quickly. And what you're doing at that moment is you're blowing off carbon dioxide. That means the pH in the bloodstream will slowly go up, become more basic. It's a very small change. But it's really, in one hand, it's very useful. May you do it slightly because it, you increase your, you really, your reaction time quickens almost. You become a little more twitchy. It's a disaster, on the other hand, that it increases panic. However, it also relates to how much sugar or non-sugar we have in our diet. And so let me talk about the experience of being hangry. I think hangry, with many people have experienced, is you're angry and hungry and have hunger and are angry at the same time. What people don't realize is when my blood sugar is low, then when I breathe quickly, my brain radically changes and I become impulsive. I lose control. And for a few people, it could even trigger an epileptic seizure, an epileptic seizure to the extreme. Now, why do I make this point? Let's look at diet. What do many people eat for breakfast, Is at least in the U.S., is essentially white flour variations of that or, you know, called uh, cereal. High sugar, intake, high sugar content and high processed foods, which when you put them into your mouth, the amylase breaks down the simple carbohydrates into sugar and you're essentially drinking sugar. Or you get the same thing if you don't drink fruit juice. You drink lots of sugar. The body then dumps massive amount of insulin as a response. The insulin takes out the sugar out of the bloodstream, stores it as fats. And then if you don't get any more food going in about two hours later, you tend to be a bit low in your blood sugar level. When your blood sugar level is low, you're much more reactive, much more impulsive. So when you're working with people and you find that they're impulsive, they have lack of control, the first thing I would teach them is to have some protein for breakfast, some very complex carbohydrates for breakfast, and I would teach them lower, slower breathing so they don't interact together. Oh, Dr. Eric Pepper, we are getting a double whammy today. An unbelievable conversation for our Brain Game series. And you just segued right into the crush War on Sugar. Each month, we dedicate one episode of our show to the War on Sugar. And this conversation fits right in there. Absolutely fantastic stuff. And, and again, another thing that people have to realize is that sugar and simple carbohydrates, it affects the body and it certainly really affects the brain. And, and to, to get the idea that we get more impulsive, more reactive, um, that can be absolutely devastating for performance. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about sport or not. Yes. And I think, I mean, I almost would recommend be careful doing this, that you do it as a self-experiment. You know, really eat a lot of sugar. I'm not usually, I don't want to recommend this really, but it's often helpful to have some flavor of it. Eat a lot of sugar, wait two and a half hours later, then hyperventilate <laughs> and see how it affects you. You often become more panicky, anxious. On the other hand, do the same experiment, eat some protein, some fats, wait the same amount of time, again, repeat it, and you'll note your mood is much more steady. Oh, interesting. I believe it. Yes. It's, it's only by knowing yourself that you believe it. You know, otherwise it's just, it's just like we get this in, in our book. We describe the physiology of this, which is helpful. But till you do stuff like that yourself, then you know it versus you believe it. 
Oh my goodness. Well, you know, if we think back to Halloween, we all grew up here going out trick-or-treating Halloween. We all had the uh, massive influx of candies and sugars. You know, we always chalked our kids' grumpy moods up the next day for staying up late, but maybe there's more to that picture than just a late night of trick-or-treating. It might have to do, it might have a lot to do with the amount of sugar we're uh, taking in over the course of those those Halloween nights. (laughs) Interesting stuff. Yes, with the interaction of breathing. So if you tend to breathe more in your chest quickly, then you tend to overbreathe more likely. Then that interaction is much stronger than if you did very slow breathing. Yeah. 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 Which is so interesting. Yeah. No, it really is interesting. Dr. Pepper, you know, uh, just before we let you go here, I have to just get to a couple of notes that I had here. Um, one thing that I really, really do like, and I'm going to uh, send this out. This will be on our social media as well. I like the idea of what you said about cell phones. It reminds you of a prison. And, and you know, this sort of takes me back to... Um, uh, tech stress. I want to get to this. There is a great on the website. There's a great little um, outtake here or, or a little outline. I'm just going to read this because I, I do have a question here. It says um, um, evolution shapes behavior. And as a species, we've evolved to be drawn to the instant gratification, constant connectivity and the shiny lights, beeps and chimes of our ever present devices in earlier eras. It says these hardware evolutionary patterns may have set us up for success, but today They confuse our instincts, leaving us vulnerable and stressed out from fractured attention, missed sleep, skipped meals, aches, pains, and exhaustion, and often addicted to our digital devices. And, you know, the book Tech Stress, this is a very, very important read for parents, teachers, coaches, and individuals for certain. Um, But it has been unbelievable how quickly, if we look at evolution, how quickly this has changed. Um, And it's not just changing uh, I guess how we operate on day to day, it's physically changing our postures. We're up against this. Uh, what do you think the turning point was? And, and, and how do you think we battle this? Cause it's not going anywhere. Well, let me put it into two pieces. One is the concept which underlies the book called evolutionary traps. Like you pointed out, we are wired through evolution to react to certain things for survival. So when I see something moving in the distance quickly or on the side, I need to react. That could be a predator or it could be food or a friend or foe. So I'm wired to react that way. Now that gets, that was great because in the past I would see it. I would freeze for a moment. I may run or not attend. I can do many things. Now, however, the same reaction still occurs on when I watch my screen and we forget. And then we do this too many times. And basically social media notifications, et cetera, are all designed to capture our attention, which previously allowed us to survive and now essentially become harmful for our being. I love an analogy we wrote in the book and a picture of it, and that's of the albatrosses. If you go, you know, if you go to the Pacific, to a, a midway island, that's an island in the middle of the Pacific, 2,000 miles away from any other island. There are thousands and thousands of albatrosses. And then you look at the beaches and their nests, and you see thousands and thousands of skeletons. That's the feather, the bones, and what is left over of their GI tract, the content, all pieces of plastic, and they're all dying. Many of them are dying. Mm-hmm. What happens is, for thousands of generations, the albatrosses would fly over the ocean. They would see something shimmering in the water, a fish. They would then eat that fish or, and then fly back and regurgitate it to their chicks. Now, however, that same shimmering object is not a fish. It's a piece of plastic. It is coated with algae, so when the albatross now takes it in, it 
thinks it's food, but it isn't. It's regurgitated, and so it's both the plastic is in its GI tract and regurgitated, and now it dies. Now, this seems, we could blame the albatross for being stupid. Let's be honest, it's stupid. Why eat the plastic, not the fish? But remember, it is being tricked, and that is the evolutionary trap. The same way is now true with much of our addiction to screens. We blame the child, I call child more often, when being captured by the computer games. But basically, it's evoking survival mechanisms. It's no different than when you go to a supermarket and you go to the counter and there are all the candy bars. Well, in our evolutionary past, calories were necessary for survival because starvation was next door. We could never eat enough. Now, however, we eat the sugars because we have too much food present, and then we blame the child for not having control or the adult. Mm -hmm. It's a combination of both. So what can we do? I think there are multiple things. One, I strongly recommend for every parent, kids should not be their cell phones till at least high school. There's too much social, the social media, that comparison is really harmful for many. I am not saying that the technology is always bad. It's very useful. I use it all the time, too. But at least set limits. And there's strict limits. And in a family table at home, have a basket where everybody's cell phone goes in and then you have dinner. All of you talk to each other or pout together, whatever it may be. However, no cell phones, no distractions are allowed. Three, you know, with computer games, the same way, set limits. Four, Schedule time outside. Do that's you know you're so lucky you're in sports and you really support sports because in sports people aren't using their cell phones. They are not moving their body. Little kids need to move their body. We are designed to develop by interacting with the world, not just a flat screen like an iPad or equivalent where you give to a baby to babysit. No, to interact with you and to see you change and crawl on the floor. That's how motor development occurs. And now so many young people are almost, I would say underdeveloped and hindered almost as they're growing up because they never developed that coordinational pattern that was part of living. Five, do not look at media, TVs, screens, smartphones, at least a half an hour before going to sleep. The blue light that shines into your eyes tends to affect melatonin, suppresses melatonin, reduces sleep. And two, just as you're getting quieter, ready for sleep, you now get stimulated by social media. We are social critters. They're necessary for survival. We must, you know, we, you know, if from a hunting and gathering society, we need to update with everybody all the time. So the social media does that. But when I look at that at the last moment before going to sleep, I'm getting excited that again interferes with sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm either Six excited learned. or I'm stressed out, man. I'm stressed out, man. All this news. And yeah. I'll t- and I'll, frankly, I'll tell you too, we, we've, we've almost put a moratorium on news in our house because uh, Dr. Pepper, it is so negative. It is just so negative. We just can't handle it. So, so we even try to stay away from, from that as well, because uh, it's just adding a lot of extra stress that frankly, we just don't need right now. Absolutely. So what you, that's what you just said is perfect. Each day, pull up a positive experience and share a positive experience with you. Six or seven, sleep in total darkness, which is hard to believe because really we used to only sleep in total darkness. It'll help the eyes. The next one, when you are on screens, interrupt yourself many times. 
to look away from the screen at the far distance, where you look away at the far distance at a field, at a tree, your eyes diverge and relax. Critical. And for the posture, because we don't know that we are collapsing, I often recommend, and I don't, I make no money on this, by the way, there's a device called Upright that works on my cell phone. And what happens, and I can set it. So what happens is when I, once I tell the, the device I am upright, when I start slouching, it will vibrate. It will remind me that I'm slouching. It's most interesting. People start slouching because they're looking at the computer. They have negative, hopeless thoughts. They're tired. And so this feedback device is easy. It helps you get up. It's now really economical. I think that the upright of upright goes probably 50 or $60. Uh, but I find in our research, it's really useful for people to be reminded to be upright. Great idea. And finally, and finally, get out of your chair, wiggle and move. So the listeners who are sitting, get up just for a moment, reach up to the sky, do a cross crawl like you're skipping place. Just skip in place for a moment. Do that. And then you're skipping in place and you're looking up. Do that for maybe 30 seconds. And then compare that by when you walk in a slouched way. And do that for 30 seconds. And then you see that when you skip, your energy went way up. And then you slouched walk, your energy went often down. And when you skip, you almost interrupt your depressive thoughts. And then you slouch, you amplify your depressive thoughts. We do have choices. They're not easy because our technology is addictive and captures us. So take, transform tech stress into tech health by taking charge of yourself with the social support of your family, your coaches, your teammates. Such great stuff. And I tell you, I love the idea that technology is working as great as it is. It's also working against us. So that awareness is great. Dr. Eric Pepper, I can't tell you how much we appreciate your insights, your thoughts, your advice, the drills and exercises and everything you share. Again, for everybody who's listening today, uh, you could check out uh, Dr. Pepper's great work. It's biofeedbackhealth.org and you can get his uh, blog there, The Pepper Perspective. And we got some of that perspective today. I feel better right now, Dr. Pepper. Thanks so much. Really, really appreciate you and all your work and, uh, and your time today. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, opportunity to share the information. Oh, there you go, everybody. Episode two of the Crush Brain Game. And that was epic. So much more than just the brain. I think right off the start, the whole idea of the brain body connection and also the influence of posture. Of course, posture being our number three priority, not simply because of function. Range of motion and function are certainly important. But we know when your posture isn't right, you cannot operate at the highest level possible. And not only is that a structural thing from muscle asymmetry and skeletal alignment, it's also a conscious thing. Just being aware of how you're sitting or standing or how you're holding yourself. A lot of great research coming out of Harvard and some of the major universities on that very topic as well. Uh, so many great things to pull out of that conversation with Dr. Pepper. I have to thank him again for coming on. I think this really sets the tone as to how much control we have over how we feel our perception of how we feel, and also how we're performing. And that's really important for everybody to know. You know, if you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, if you're not feeling right that day, you're a little bit off, there's a lot of things you can do in your checklist to make sure or at least give yourself a shot at getting to where you can function at the level you're happy with. Now, trust me, there's no such thing as perfection. 
All right, there is not. We've got an incredible uh, series of courses coming out, and one of them is dedicated to exactly this, us putting too much pressure on ourselves to be perfect. There's no such thing as perfect. It does not exist. And the fact that we are looking for perfection or we're striving for perfection is unrealistic. It's unrealistic from the organizational standpoint, from administration, coaching, and scouting. It doesn't exist. You have to be realistic and understand, but also from the athlete's perspective, and most importantly, from the athlete's perspective, you have to understand that you can't shoot to be 100%. You can't be 100%. When was the last time you were 100%? Think about it. I can't think of the last. I wasn't even 100% before I was born. When I was in my mother's womb, I think she told me that when, when she was pregnant with me, she had this unbelievable craving for pickles and peanut butter or some damn thing. If you think that didn't mess me up inside there, whoo, you got another thing coming. It, it certainly did. Right. And, and again, I kind of say that jokingly, but it's true. When was the last time you were perfect? It doesn't exist. And yet in a lot of these practice uh, environments that we create for our athletes, we're striving to give them this perfect, beautiful setting and scenarios to practice in when we should be making it absolute chaos. If you want to truly succeed in the world of sport and high performance sport, you better be able to adjust, adapt on the fly. And the only way that happens is if you practice it. There's certainly a time to break down and work on specific skill sets. Don't get me wrong. That's really, really important. But in the big picture, man, we put too much pressure on ourselves to be perfect. So let's get away from that for sure. All right. And that's all part of the things that you need to understand you can control. And you know, of course, we have had experts on, starting with Harvey Dorfman, one of the one of the groundbreaking pioneers in the mental game of sport. And I was lucky enough again to spend a lot of time with Harvey Dorfman in my career to to really change my thinking about the mental side of the game and empowering athletes to take control of that side of the game and of their lives because it goes well beyond sport. And these are things we can teach through sport. You know, not all athletes are going to go on to have incredibly, you know, successful careers in sport, but man, they go on to do special things outside of sport. And the lessons we teach inside of sport, man, they can carry over. And these conversations get even more important when we start talking about that beyond sport. Because everything that we do to help our athletes perform inside of their games can certainly be applied to the game of life. No cliche intended. And that is all serious is all get up. So uh, great, great stuff. I had to thank Dr. Pepper again. Listen, I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Episode two of the Crush Brain Game. So much more to come. We are going to crack down over the next few weeks and look at mindfulness and awareness. And the thought I wanted to get to earlier before I got sidetracked, I sidetracked myself. But the idea, you know, Harvey Dorfman, Jacques Delaire, Jim Fannin, you know, Jacques Delaire. Hey, control what you can control. That's part of mindfulness and awareness, right? That's a really, really important concept. And we're going to talk more about that. We're certainly going to look into sports psychology. We know that when you're developing um, the physical side of development is really, really important. But at the highest levels of the game, where everybody's pretty physically able, listen, if you don't have that physical side, the strength, speed, power, um, taken care of. You don't have the skill and talent and technical tactical side taken care of. That has to be addressed. It really does. If you're going to achieve your potential, we set up our athletes for that side of the game. And once that side of the game is taken care of, 
you know, talk to any elite athlete. It's not the physical side that's challenging, it's the mental side. It's being in the right place. It's being in the moment. These are all trainable attributes. And of course, we gotta dig down and take a good hard look at the technology that's now allowing us to train and understand the brain like never before. We've got some incredible conversations coming up as the Crush Brain Game series continues. If you guys have any ideas, thoughts, or something you'd like us to look into, get to us, write to us, info at Crush Performance. You can drop me a line on Twitter, at Jeff Crush, or on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Just search out Crush Performance and we're there. And let's connect. Hey, man, that's what it's all about. Spreading the good word. <laughs> that's our mantra here at Crush Performance. So get to us. All right, that'll do it for today, everybody. Have a great week. Get out there, have fun, get better, and we'll talk to you next week. Episode number three of The Brain Game. Talk to you then. Goodbye now. Don't forget to ride. This is a place for my head quick fix on Radio Influence. I read a bunch of articles about it last night from a million different places, and I kind of came up with, with 10 different traits. 10? 10. Ten. <laughs> That make a person toxic. Okay. All right. Let's hear it, Number one. Yeah. Number one, master manipulators. They know how to play the game. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) Number two, they are skilled liars. Ding, 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 ding. All right. I'll stop doing that. But yes. Uh, Number three, they're all great actors. Yeah. Four, they all use people. You know, one way or another, they all... Just use people. Man, you found like the the the, the source, whatever you call it, dictionary. I mean, you've got the encyclopedia of toxic people. You got you're hitting everyone on the head. Dude, they lie, they steal, they're controlling. <laughs> All they do is criticize. Uh-huh. You know, uh, they create drama, they bully. These are all traits of a toxic person. Mm-hmm. And I have dealt with all of them. Well, I think we all have yeah. at one point or another. And, you know, they can be abusive, unsupportive. I mean, all the things everybody already knows, you know, and it's like, at what point do you say, you know what? Enough is enough. There's no pleasing this person. You know, I just can't deal with it anymore. You know, at what point do you get there? And the problem is it's not the same for every, every person, you know, getting to that point is different for, for every single person. You know, it's just how much can somebody take a place for my head with Brandon Thompson and Jerry P. Tuck can be found on Apple podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn radio, Google podcasts, and radioinfluence.com.